morning. Welcome. Good to see you this morning. Fun to share in a little bit of uh, fellowship, a little bit of joy there. And then to be able to fall right in and sing a song all kind of in rounds, very impressive. Very impressive. Glad you're here this morning. If you're a guest of ours, we are especially honored to have you with us today. Maybe you heard the story about the elderly gentleman, very fit, very well put together. He drives up to a club one evening in his Maserati. He gets out, he hands the valet his keys. He walks inside, he sees a very attractive, uh, very well put together woman in about her 80s. He sits down beside her and gives her his best smile and says, So tell me, beautiful, do I come here often? Listen, I'm the perfect age for that joke, okay? All of you who are younger than me, you don't get that joke. All of you who are older than me, you get it. You don't think it's funny. I think it's a pretty good joke. But actually, I'm telling the joke for a reason. And the reason is, as we get older, as we age, we're forced to deal with some things that we didn't have to deal with earlier. You know, some things become problematic that it wasn't a problem when we were younger, but now it's a problem. You know, now it's an issue. Now we have to start dealing with it. You know, we age, we mature, things change. We get that with the body, right? Happens with the church, too. Sometimes when we get a little bit uh, more mature and a little bit older, things come up that we have to deal with. We've been going through the book of Acts, and God keeps giving us these glimpses of this new community of believers. And if you've noticed, I keep using that phrase, this new community of believers, because what's going on is brand new. I mean, this is different. This is radical. This is something that, that these people hadn't done before. Um, they were treating people, treating each other in ways that... They didn't used to treat each other. They were worshiping God different than they had worshiped God before. You know, this was new to all of them. They didn't grow up going to vacation Bible school as kids. You know, they didn't ride in the teen uh, church band going places. This was different. This was exciting. Now, they'd never claimed a relationship with a risen Savior before. For the most part, this new community of believers, for the most part, so far so good. This whole Jesus thing is really catching on. There was fellowship. There was purpose. There was excitement. And the reason it was catching on, the reason it was so exciting, was simply Jesus made sense. Jesus just made sense to a lot of people. This whole Jesus thing kind of fell into place. There were people who were looking for something. People who were looking for something to give them more meaning in their lives. To make their lives better to make their lives more. Jesus just made sense. So people are buying into Jesus. And yeah, they had some issues, and they had some questions, but this community, this movement, the, the church, it's growing. I mean, really right out of the gate. Acts chapter 2, we see that at the very beginning, 3,000 people accepted the message that Peter preached, baptized into Jesus for the remission of their sins. The Lord is adding to their number daily those that are being saved. By the time you get to chapter 4, the number is up to 5,000, not counting women and children. 
They were selling land. They were selling property. They were sharing their possessions. Even in the face of opposition, they're excited. In fact, it seems that the opposition is really strengthening them. It's making them more committed, more passionate. Um, they're, they're, they're convinced that people want to hear this message. And you remember what they're calling their message? Good news. We're sharing good news. And it was good news. Who doesn't want to hear about forgiveness and grace and mercy? Luke describes this tremendous amount of momentum that's going on within this new community. And Acts chapter 6 begins by telling us that they continue to multiply rapidly. Everything is going so well. Yeah, there's a few speed bumps along the way. You know, there's some opposition, but again, they're dealing with the opposition. And then right in the middle of all this momentum comes a really sad statement. You know, sometimes you see something, you read it, or you hear it, and you think, wow, that's so sad. Now, maybe not tragic, maybe not scary, maybe not uh, even unexpected, just sad. I think I've told you before that, that I like old country music, not the new stuff. I like the old country music. And some of you are thinking, how sad. But... <laughs> But I like it mainly because of the lyrics. They tell such great stories. And some of the lyrics, that old country stuff, just rips your heart out. He stopped loving her today. They placed a wreath upon his door, and soon they'll carry him away. He stopped loving her today. Ouch. Oh. It just gets you right here, doesn't it? Or somewhere. In the twilight glow I see her, blue eyes crying in the rain. When we kissed goodbye and parted, I knew we'd never meet again. I tear up when I think about those kind of lyrics to those songs. I do. Martha has a different reaction. <laughs> Equally reflexive. But, um, but you will read no sadder sentence than Acts chapter 6 verse 1. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The old King James Version says murmurings. The NIV says simply, there was complaining. People within this new community begin complaining. There's rumblings of discontent. What a sad, sad statement. And yet on the other hand, I'm really thankful that Luke added that statement. Luke, the one who wrote this down, you know, how easy would it have been for Luke just to kind of gloss over the rumblings of discontent, just to kind of ignore that in his writing. You know, not mention that people were complaining. But I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did because as I've read, read through the book of Acts, you know, you get to this part, if you're like me, you stop and ask, how are they doing it? You now, how are they pulling this off? You now, all this, all this activity, all this growth, all this focus, how do they do it without getting hung up on the same issues, the same kind of problems, the same kind of uh, roadblocks that we seem to encounter? And then Luke comes along and says, well, they had issues. 
And they did have problems. So, how did they deal with it? Let's read the account uh, in the text and and see what's going on here. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Those who spoke Greek complained against those who spoke Hebrew, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. We apostles should spend our time preaching and teaching the Word of God, not administering a food program, they said. Now, look around among yourselves, brothers, and select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will put them in charge of this business. Then we can spend our time in prayer and preaching and teaching the Word. This idea pleased the whole group. And they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, a Gentile convert to the Jewish faith who had now become a Christian. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. God's message was preached in ever-widening circles. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted also. Did you really think that Satan was just going to let this movement continue without putting up a fight? I mean, you remember in the last chapter when Ananias and Sapphira gave their gift and lied about it? It was Satan who was credited with deceiving them and placing that in their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Did you really think Satan was going to stop there? You know, if I were to hand you a piece of wire this morning and ask you to, to divide that wire in two pieces, break it in two, but I didn't give you any pliers, I didn't give you any wire cutters, you could do it, right? And you'd probably all do it exactly the same way. You'd bend it one way, and then you'd bend it back, and back and forth, and back and forth, and you'd just keep bending it that way until finally the wire would break. We all get that. Well, I think that's what Satan's doing here in the book of Acts. He is attacking the church. And he is attacking from without. And he is attacking from within. He's attacking from the outside. He's attacking from the inside. Remember back in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are brought before the council and they're threatened. That's an attack from the outside. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about their gift. That's an attack from the inside. Then later on in that chapter, the apostles are brought back before the council. They're not just threatened, they're beaten, attacked from without. And now here, as chapter 6 begins, we see some of the believers, some of the Christians, murmuring, complaining, an attack from within. Well, what's the issue here? What were they murmuring about? What were they complaining about? And Luke tells us exactly what it is. It's discrimination. The Greek-speaking Christians felt that their widows were being ignored in the distribution of food. They said, hey, the Hebrew speakers, and their widows, they seem to be getting preferential treatment as we're distributing this food that these, all these women need, and that's not fair. And so the Greek-speaking Christians start complaining about that. Now understand, they're all Jews. They just come from different regions and speak different languages. So the Greek speakers are saying, hey, 
Our widows are getting ignored. And by the way, I should say this. I think that the complaining was justified. I think they were right in complaining. It does appear that there was some preferential treatment being given to the Hebrew speakers uh, instead of the Greek-speaking women. So it, it certainly was a problem. And it was causing people to complain. I'm sure you've heard the story about the couple that had the four-year-old boy who never said a word. In fact, his entire life he never spoke. And they were, of course, very concerned. They took him to every doctor imaginable. And every doctor, every specialist said, nothing wrong physically with this little boy. I don't think there's anything wrong emotionally with the little boy. He's, he's just not talking. And then one morning as he sat down to breakfast, he looked at his plate and looked at his mother and said, Mom, you burned the toast. And, of course, the family is just, you know, ecstatic. They're, they're, oh, you finally talked. We're so happy. We're so glad you're finally talking. And the mother said, why did it take you so long to say anything? The little boy shrugs his shoulders and said, up till now, everything was okay. <laughs> Thomas Fuller once said, we are born crying, we live complaining, and we die disappointed. And, boy, do I hope he's wrong. Yeah, I was born crying, but I don't want to live my life complaining. And I certainly don't intend to die disappointed. So let me share with you two points this morning about this passage in, in Acts chapter 6. And the first is this. There's two pretty simple points. It's not about me. It is not about me. I'll say it again. I'm glad Luke told us that there was complaining going on in the first century church. Even though it appears the complaining was justified, there were people who were upset. There were people who were unhappy. There were people who were murmuring. How did they handle it? What did they do? Because the truth is there's murmuring in the 21st century church as well. Maybe not quite as bad as that little boy who only spoke when he had something to complain about. But from time to time, I, I think we all can be pretty me-focused. And I think I can prove it to you this morning. When you look at a picture of a group of people and you're one of the group, who's the first person you look at? You look at yourself, don't you? There can be 20 people in the picture. You look first at yourself. And the only criteria you have as to if that's a good picture is how you look. Everybody else might have their eyes closed. Hair all over their head. But if you look pretty good, you'll say, wow, that's a good picture. That's a great picture. Or just the opposite. If 19 people look great and you're the one you know, with your eye half open, you're going, terrible picture. Rip that up. I hate that picture. Oh, it's a great picture. There is a temptation to view the church through that same lens. What has the church done for me lately? Are my needs being met? Are my suggestions being heard? Do I like the music that's being sung, the way the, the service is carried about? Do I like the preaching? Are there enough programs for my kids? It's all about me. I want to be served. Of course, don't ask me to serve anyone else. It's all about me. I want to sing the songs that I like. I want the service to look like I think it should look. It's all about me. I want you to treat me like family on Sunday. I would prefer you leave me alone the rest of the week. It's all about me. I'm much less concerned with the way than I am about getting my way. 
Now, we might not come out and say it quite that bluntly, but I think we're all guilty of time to time of murmuring. We look around and things aren't just exactly like we think they should be. So there begins rumblings of discontent. I think it's something we need to remind ourselves of because I think it happens to all of us. Listen, if you've ever wanted to hold on to traditions or ministries that you like, even though it might interfere with someone else hearing the good news of Jesus, or even though it might keep some other Christians from growing closer to Christ, then you've probably felt the pull of, it's all about me. If you've ever resisted learning to appreciate or maybe even to tolerate some new songs that we sing, or even old songs for that matter, because that's not my style. Even though some of your brothers and sisters are, are clearly encouraged in finding a language that they can worship God more intuitively, you've probably felt the pull of, it's all about me. If you've ever resisted getting to know a brother or a sister because you're just not comfortable, comfortable around them, whatever that means, you've probably felt the pull of, it's all about me. If you've ever been quick to demand service from the church, but not so quick to provide service, to help someone else, you've undoubtedly felt the pull of, it's all about me. You know, I'm reading through Acts, and I wonder if any of those early Christians ever got together and thought, you know, you remember what it was like back in the day? Remember when it was just 120 of us up in that upper room? Oh, that was great, wasn't it? You remember the prayers that we prayed? You remember the emotions? You remember the way the Spirit moved this? Just 120 of us? If we could just get back to that. Or maybe there were some there saying, hey, I was there when it was 120. I was there from the beginning. I go way back in this thing. Now it's so big, I don't even know all the people. If we could just go back to the way it was, wouldn't that be great? And the rumblings of discontent begin. Well, what did they do about the rumblings? What did they do about the complaining? Look again at verses 2 through 5. We apostles should spend our time preaching and teaching the Word of God, not administering a food program, they said. Now look around among yourselves, brothers, and select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We'll put them in charge of this business. Then we can spend our time in prayer and preaching and teaching the Word. This idea pleased the whole group. The Apostle says, you're right, there's a problem here. There is a problem. There is discrimination going on, and we can't have it. We have to take care of everybody. We have to care just as much for these Grecian widows as these Hebrew-speaking widows. We've got to do something about this problem, regardless of where people are from, regardless of what language they speak. We need to take care of these people. But, but, we're not going to get sidetracked by this issue. Because it's not about us. It's all about Him. The response to the apostles was, listen, it is all about Him. We're going to deal with this, yes. But we're not going to allow it to slow us down. We're going to keep praying. And we're going to keep teaching. And we're going to keep preaching the Word of God because it's all about Him. We're going to preach. We're going to teach. What are they going to preach? What are they going to teach? At the end of chapter 5, we're told exactly what the message was that they were teaching and preaching. 
And I love the way the New Living Translation words that passage. Remember I told you chapter 6 begins with one of the saddest statements in Scripture? There's rumblings of discontent. Chapter 5 ends with one of the best statements in Scripture. What exactly were they teaching and preaching? Chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and in their homes, they continued to teach and preach this message. The Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. I love that phrase. The Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. I have that written in the front of just about every Bible that I own. The Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. It is not about me. It is not about you. It is all about Him. Yes, things come up that we've got to deal with. But don't forget, the Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. Yeah, we're different. We have different backgrounds, different experiences, different opinions. But never forget, the Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. Yeah, people will disappoint you. People will frustrate you. They'll let you down. But the Messiah you're looking for is Jesus. I will frustrate you. I'll let you down. And then I'll let you down again. But the Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. This congregation is served by a group of elders. Godly men. I respect and appreciate the work that they do. They do a task that has eternal consequences, but they will be the first to tell you the Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. They're not perfect men. You parents who complain about your kids. Your kids who complain about your parents. Your spouses who complain about your partner. The Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. The same Messiah who said, seek and you'll find. It's not about you. It's all about Him. As a community of believers, as a family, as a church, what are we about? What are we all about? Well, I hope that as a family, we are all about Jesus. We are the church of Christ, right? I mean, you walked by this sign this morning on the side of the building, didn't you? Oh, the church of Christ. You're the ones who don't have instruments in your worship service. You don't have a piano, right? No, we're the ones who are all about Jesus. Oh, the church of Christ. You're the ones who take communion every single Sunday, right? No, we're the ones who are all about Jesus. Now listen, I appreciate a cappella singing. And I would probably be the first to complain if we didn't take communion next Sunday. It's right. It's biblical. Plus, it's such a tremendous blessing. Why wouldn't we? But I don't want to be defined by those things. I want to be defined by my love for Jesus. I'm proud to be a member of the Church of Christ because we are all about Jesus. Back in the day when, when I was going to a lot of youth rallies, we would go places and um, there was a time when it got very popular for youth rallies and other groups to have skits. You know, people would come in and put on these little skits and um, I think it was Mike Manley that first started talking about the big yellow skit book. That somewhere there had to be a big yellow skit book because every you know, month or so we'd go someplace else and some other group would come in and we'd see the exact same three or four skits. And the most popular skit apparently in the big yellow skit book was Focus on Jesus. Remember this? 
There'd be four or five guys come up on the stage and they'd all start going, focus on Jesus, focus on Jesus, focus on Jesus. And they're walking around doing that and a nice looking girl would walk by and one guy would go, ooh, focus on the girls, focus on the girls. And they all would say, ooh, focus on the girls. But of course there's one good kid, right? One righteous kid. Hey, no, 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 focus on Jesus, focus on Jesus. And they'd all start, oh, you're right, focus on Jesus, focus on Jesus. And then someone looked down and there was a $10 bill on the ground. Ooh, focus on the money. Focus on the money. And they would all focus on the money. And then the good kid, of course, no, no, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. We saw that skit 25 times probably. I don't know. And yet here I remember it, right? And actually, that skit made a pretty good point. It is so easy to just drift. Not, not turn our back on Jesus, not slam the door, you know, not curse Him, just our focus just drifts a little bit. It just wanders ever so slightly. And before we realize it, before we even know it, we're focusing on issues, and we're focusing on personalities, and we're focusing on problems, and we're focusing on politics, and we're focusing on all these things, which might be good, important things to deal with, but they aren't Jesus. And we've got to remind ourselves, we need to focus on Jesus. It is all about Him. Now, if our focus is on Jesus, we won't be like the physician who misdiagnosed his patient. He pronounced a, a woman to be dead. And he walked out into the waiting room where her family was waiting. And he walked up to her husband and said, I'm very sorry, but your wife has passed away. She's dead. And of course, the husband's grief-stricken. The doctor is very surprised when the nurse runs out and says, Doctor, get back in here quick. He goes back in, in the room and she says, this, this lady's alive. She's not dead. She's alive. You've got to go out and tell the family. But the doctor was so prideful that he didn't want to admit that he'd made a mistake. So he walks back out and he calls the grief-stricken husband over and he said, I, I need to talk to you about the condition of your wife. He said, what do you mean the condition of my wife? I, I thought you said she was dead. And the doctor sort of cleared his throat and he said, well, she's showing some slight improvement. <laughs> it's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? He was so full of pride that he refused to allow himself to have a, a moment of celebration and a moment of victory and share some really good news. You know, we kind of laugh at that and we roll our eyes at that, but I'm afraid sometimes we do the same thing. We have gone from darkness to light. We have gone from lost to saved. We have gone from eternal death to eternal life, and somehow we give the impression of we've experienced some slight improvement. Really, we were dead in our sins before Jesus. Now, we are children of God. I'd say that's more than slight improvement, wouldn't you? Now, how are you doing? Oh, okay, I guess. Well, I didn't get the promotion. My car's broken. Life is boring. No, I'm a child of God. I've gone from death to life. I've gone from lost to saved. The Messiah I'm looking for is Jesus. 
We get so hung up on the things we don't have. Sometimes we miss all the blessings we've been given. You have a ticket to heaven no thief can take. An eternal home no divorce can break. Every sin of your life has been cast to the sea. Every mistake you've made is nailed to the tree. You're blood-bought and heaven-made, a child of God forever saved. So be grateful, joyful, for isn't it true what you don't have is much less than what you do. The Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. That's the message that was preached and taught in the first century. It's got to be the message that we're preaching and teaching today. Yeah, we'll deal with issues as they come up, but we can't lose our focus. The Messiah we are looking for is Jesus. Maybe this morning you've lost your focus a little bit. You haven't shut the door, you haven't turned your back, but you've just sort of drifted a little bit from the Messiah that you've been seeking. Maybe this morning He's not your Messiah. He's not your Lord. We'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to help you deal with that and and introduce you to the Messiah that you are seeking. Listen, as a church family, if we can help you in any way, there's going to be some people at the front of the auditorium. We'd love to meet you there. Let's stand and sing.